0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen. In what is sure to become a classic, Radhika Govind Rajan's Animal Intimacies, Interspecies Relatedness in India's Central Himalayas mobilizes the theme of interspecies relatedness to explore a variety of human, non-human animal encounters in contemporary India. Animal Intimacies is a path-paving work that combines theoretical innovation and playfulness, ethnographic depth, and profound attunement to capturing the aspirations and tragedies of everyday life through the art of narrative. By exploring complex modes of relatedness that bind humans with non-human animals, ranging from cows, goats, pigs, and bears, in such varied conceptual and political arenas, as animal sacrifice, animal protection, the law, and sexuality and queer desire. This brook brings into view a vision of love and intimacy that exceeds and subverts the colonizing grammar of often assumed hierarchies like human, animal, state, citizen, and love, violence. Focused on the state of Uttarakhand, animal intimacies mobilizes the theme of interspecies relatedness, with much aesthetic poise, to both uncover and bring into view the operation and co-operation of anthropomorphism, the insidious fantasies of modern state sovereignty, and the enduring violence of patriarchy. In addition to its astonishing erudition, Animal Intimacies is also written with breathtaking clarity and lyrical panache. It will also be a delight to teach in undergraduate and graduate seminars on modern South Asia, theories and methods in anthropology and religious studies, women, gender and sexuality studies, and animal studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Radhika Govindrajan. Hello, Radhika, how are you doing?
1: Hi, Shirali, I'm doing well. How are you?
0: Good. So thank you so much, Radhika, for being a part of the New Books Network and uh, uh, for taking out the time to discuss this exciting new book. Uh, We have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. Uh, Could you share with our listeners a bit, Radhika, about uh, how you became an anthropologist, a scholar of South Asia, and how did you get to write this particular book?
1: Um, Yeah, sure. I had a bit of a meandering trajectory to anthropology. I began as a historian and my first degrees were in history, but um, I grew up in a a university space that was really engaged with political questions and understanding the ways in which history was used in the present, but also the ways in which one could try and think about the past on its own terms, while also being aware of uh, its political ramifications. And I uh, was trained particularly in the fields of subaltern studies, feminist uh, history, social history and that deeply shaped how I understand um, the ways um, in which the world works. And when I decided to get my PhD, it made sense to shift to anthropology because many of the questions that were motivating the historians I was reading were actually coming from anthropology. And some of the more exciting anthropology I was reading was historically minded. So it seemed like a good switch to make. Um, And I've always been committed to working in South Asia. I grew up in India and um, I've been um, committed to working there and locating my questions there. And that's how I came to the discipline.
0: Terrific. Uh, So, Radha, let's begin by uh, having you talk a bit about how you would describe the central theme and argument of the book i especially if as part of this if you could reflect a bit on uh, you know the larger project of trying to question the human non-non-human animal hierarchy and also this key category that comes up repeatedly in this book of relatedness Uh, what do you mean by this category what kind of work does it do so sort of a question about the broader themes and arguments of the book and if you could reflect a bit on these specific elements also
1: Sure. Um, the book is fundamentally about what it means to live in relation to other beings and what it means specifically for humans to live in relation to other animals and vice versa. And I was drawn to it because um, I realized that there were all kinds of very intense relationships between humans and animals that reflected not just on human worlds, but also the ways in which um, people imagined the way in which they were became human. And uh, the book is really about trying to understand those entanglements and those everyday relationships and trying to make sense of how they uh, relate and tie humans and animals together. And the the argument about relatedness is shaped very much by feminist kinship studies. Um, You know, there's been a long and really powerful tradition of feminist writing on kinship, which has pushed us to denaturalize our ideas of kinship and to think about the ways in which um, sex and biology come to be naturalized, but also the ways in which that naturalization is pushed against in everyday life. Um, And in particular, those scholars have uh, pushed us to think about the ways in which uh, categories like human and animal, nature and culture, sex and gender, kinship and biology come to be uh, naturalized. And that is something that I have really been inspired by. Um, And that really goes through the whole book as I try and think about what relatedness to animals means and how that shapes human notions of their own sense of kinship, but also what that relatedness means for larger uh, political movements and for um, more everyday intimate ethical concerns. So the book looks at uh, different kinds of relatedness or kinship, if you will. Um, Each chapter focuses on a different animal, and I find that each animal focuses, uh, opens up a new kind of theme. So one of the chapters is on animal sacrifice and the ways in which sacrifice is a relationship of kinship. Another chapter is on contemporary cow protection movements and how the kinship that is being pushed by Hindu nationalism to imagine the cow as the mother of the Hindu nation is both embraced and resisted by people who actually live alongside real cows. Um, I have a chapter on monkeys and the ways in which people distinguish between local monkeys and monkeys from elsewhere and how that feeds into uh, regional politics of belonging. Um, one of the other chapters looks at uh, this talk about people having sex with bears and how that uh, that interspecies intimacy opens up ways to imagine, reimagine pleasure and to reimagine what it means to be connected to other animals. And so that's really the argument about kinship. And Uh, and how to think of the work it does in the world and how the doing of kinship actually produces the social world that people and animals share. Um, There's The other fundamental part of this is also to reimagine how anthropology engages with non-humans. And, you know, there's a long tradition, of course, of thinking of animal symbolism within anthropology. But I wanted to try and move beyond that, not think of animals just as symbols for human action, but also as uh, thinking, emotional agent of beings themselves who actually shape the relationships that people have with them, who, who force people to uh, to imagine themselves in relation to other beings, who think of it to, and who... Um, create the social worlds that we inhabit. And so the book is very concerned with trying to think about individual animals as well, and to try and think about the ways in which individual animals, not just species, not just groups, actually end up uh, really shaping the nature of these relationships. And that's the argument about pushing against hierarchy. I also want to be careful because I don't want to imply that relatedness implies an erasure of difference between humans and non-human animals, or between humans themselves. And so the book really thinks about what it means to be connected across difference and for difference to be, in many ways, the basis of connection. But also to think about the w- the ways in which that difference between humans and animals, between humans, emerges and is contested and is entrenched in everyday life.
0: Terrific. So let's turn to your uh, chapter on animal sacrifice and, and goats. Um, so again sort of a broad uh, contextual question and then a more specific one Uh, could you Mm -hmm. give our uh, listeners some kind of a sense of the context in which this debate around animal sacrifice is unfolding in contemporary India I mean who are the main actors and so on and again taking the example of goat sacrifice how does your conceptualization of sacrifice uh, bring into view the the affective dimensions of sacrifice that again highlight this key theme that you talked about of uh, interspecies relatedness Uh, And how do you, the other sort of conceptual question that I uh, wondered about as I read this chapter was, uh, how do you depart from readings of animal sacrifice that view it primarily uh, as symbolic of religious ritual? How do you question Mm -hmm. that kind of a reading?
1: Yeah, I'll try and uh, take the questions one by one. So the first question about the broader context, animal sacrifice is uh, an important part of religious practice. In the region, and so you can offer a sacrifice to uh, gods upon the completion of something happy, like having a child or finding a job. But there are also these uh, other category of sacrifices that are offered to rid people of um, evil spirits or to shake off noxious substances. And I focus primarily on um, the first category of sacrifices, and it's become a fairly contentious practice of late. Um, There's been a great deal of opposition by animal rights activists, but also by certain Hindu reform groups who view the practice as a corruption or a superstition of what is a true and authentic Hinduism. And so both those groups have actually joined up and have gone to the courts in the past to ask for a ban on sacrifice. So the Uttarakhand High Court had actually put uh, severe restrictions on sacrifice in 2011 in response to a public interest litigation that was filed by an animal rights group, People for Animals, and uh, the practice was uh, declared. It was declared that you could only sacrifice animals that you consume and also that the sacrifice would now take place in covered sheds and it would not be this kind of open public spectacle. And so there was a, a pause, if you will, on sacrifice, but there were also several moments where people pushed back against the court and kept on sacrificing animals uh, in the open and so on. But they also took the challenge on legally. And so in 2016, the court actually went back and its word and allowed animals to be brought into the temple to be blessed even though they were sacrificed elsewhere so it's an ongoing debate and there it's very heated and um the the basic question that is being posed is firstly is this practice hindu and secondly you know what do you make of the violence that is at the heart of this practice and that's what i was interested in as well i mean the first question fits within this larger um debate that has taken place since the 19th century about what constitutes Hinduism and how to produce a kind of authentic Hinduism that is purged of this thing called superstition. Obviously these are the very idea of an authentic religion and the idea of superstition, um, these are colonial categories and these were categories used by the colonial state and these were categories used by Hindu reformers in conversation with the colonial state. So they're very loaded and this, uh, this this tradition of trying to separate the two has a long history. Um, on the second question of violence, you know, the, the, that's where the affective dimensions came in for me, and I started thinking about why it is that sacrifice is so meaningful, and why people are so resistant to the idea of sacrificing an, a coconut or flowers in place of animals, which is what Hindu reformers have asked them to do. You know, why don't you just sacrifice a coconut instead? If the idea is just to give God a token of your appreciation, and I heard from numerous people that a coconut really didn't have the same kind of meaning as a goat. And the reason that it didn't have the same significance as a goat was because people didn't share the same kind of affective relationships with a coconut that they did with goats. And I started thinking about what it would mean to take that argument seriously and not just dismiss it as you know a thin veneer for people's lust for meat, which is how animal rights activists view this, right? That people really want to eat meat and they want to be violent towards animals and they cover it up in this language of spirituality and love and affect. So I spent a lot of time um, during my field work with women who were raising animals. And I would spend a great deal of my time with them at the grazing grounds. And this is really difficult labor. And, I, um, and the labor, I argue, that women perform in raising and caring for animals is what makes the sacrifice of the animal that there is so difficult, what makes it truly a sacrifice, because it's a painful moment, um, you know, and there's clearly this, uh, this abrupt snapping of a connection. But I also wanted to be careful not to romanticize that connection and not fall into the trap of saying, you know, that women have a natural connection with nature and with animals. And the argument there really is that it is this everyday intense gender division of labor that leaves women in the position of having to care almost entirely for animals. Um, and that becomes the basis of their sacrificial connection. And this is why um, I argue in the book that we have to think about what is sacrificed. And I argue that many theorists have sacrificed, have seen the sacrificial object as purely symbolic, right, that it doesn't matter what it is. Um, you know, Evans Pritchard argues that a cucumber can replace an ox in certain ways cases and so on and um, and that's not an argument that makes sense to me because here it is really the relationship that you have to the sacrificial being that makes um, the, the ritual so meaningful and that is what I argue that these uh, systems of symbolic representation become meaning meaningful only when they're grounded in these lived material relationships
0: so now I want to turn to the uh, theme of uh, cow sacrifice and uh, uh, to begin again, sort of a more contextual question. Uh, could you give our listeners a sense of this cow protection uh, movement uh, in India? And uh, it was very interesting for me to, to see the ways in which this movement brings together what might seem like uh, dissonant actors, like Hindu nationalists and animal rights activists and so on. Um, and again, um, the, the question of materiality becomes very important in this chapter also. So mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Um, in, in what ways do you show that attending to the materiality of the cow and to her embodied relations with other human and non-human actors might bring these Hindu nationalist uh, narratives of cow sacrality uh, into question? So again, sort of a contextual question and then a more specific conceptual question.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to give you a broader sense, the cow has really become critical to Indian politics in recent years. Um, And the cow is held up by Hindu nationalists as the mother of the Hindu nation. She's called Gaumata, which means cow mother. Um, and there's very much the sense that the the fate of the Hindu nation is tied to how the cow is treated. And what this has meant in political practice is numerous things. One, there's been a spate of legislation that has tried to ban cow slaughter in several states. Um, it's banned the consumption of beef, the transportation of beef in some, in some states. There have been a series of different laws, and I won't get into that because i will take us on another route, but that's one of the ways in which this um, objective of cow protection has been achieved. The other thing um, that is um, is also very frightening and has been intensified in the last few years is the series of lynchings of mostly Muslim and Dalit people uh, who have been accused on the flimsiest grounds, in most cases, um, of sacrificing and slaughtering cows. Um, And this has um, this has really been the sort of forefront of many of the cow protection movements that I've been tracking. This idea that you have to protect the cow at any cost, and that the cow violence against the cow has to be rewarded um, or retaliated uh, to with more violence. And so I was interested in understanding how it is that this project uh, is frustrated, um, but not just by the people who have to live within the confines of this expectation of what it means to love a cow, but also uh, by Hindu nationalist ideology itself. And Uttarakhand was one of the first states to actually pass a law in 2007 that um, banned the slaughter of cattle, banned the consumption of beef, banned the transportation of cattle across state lines. um, And very soon, animal rights activists and a number of uh, sort of self-styled gurus uh, started bemoaning the fact that cows were being smuggled from the hills in great numbers. And, you know, if you um, look at cows being smuggled across international borders, say in uh, on the india bangladesh border, many of those cows actually do come from places like Uttarakhand. So it was clear that there was this sort of thriving uh, smuggling trade. And what made this interesting was that these organizations, especially the Hindu nationalist nationalist organizations, were realizing that the people who were giving up and who were playing a part in the smuggling trade were upper caste Hindus who, in their ideal universe, should actually have been fully behind this uh, mandate of cow protection. And so I... Begin the chapter by talking about uh, Parveen Togadia, who is the head of the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, one of the Hindu nationalist organizations. And he gave a speech in the state um, in 2011, I believe, where he said that we um, need to start thinking about how to make the cow um, lucrative and profitable from its milk down to its dung, because clearly. the the religious argument is not enough to allow farmers to protect the cow we need to make the cow economically viable and that is one of the the flashpoints within this hindu nationalist imagining of cow protection right the the Tensions between the symbolic and the economic. And I explore that in the chapter. But the other sort of uh, main point that I want to make, and this is in keeping with the larger argument of the book, that we need to think about the role that body, animal bodies and animal behavior themselves play in these larger social and political projects, is that the, um, the cows are not static Homogeneous beings, right? There are different breeds of cows, there are cows with different kinds of behaviors. And they really end up shaping the ways in which people uh, relate to them. And so what we had in Uttarakhand was this aggressive dairy development push that went along with the cow protection, right? And dairy development has also been a huge part of the Hindutva um, project of cow protection and cow development. So Um, a number of Jersey cows actually started flooding the region because Jersey cows are um, light. They're able to actually manage in the terrain, but they also provide more milk than the indigenous varieties of cow. And what this meant was that people were dealing with very different kinds of cows, you know, they were dealing with their own mountain cows, pahadi cows, and then they were dealing with Jersey cows, and they were noticing that these are very different cows, they have different kinds of behaviors, Um, they had different diets, they responded to people differently, many people argued that, you know, that, that they're old cows were really sort of cantankerous and quarrelsome. And these new cows were friendly and would let anybody touch them, uh, which meant that they didn't actually, they weren't discerning in the same ways that the old cows were. And that ability to be discerning was a huge part of the old cows' ritual strength. And so they were arguing that the mountain cows were actually ritually powerful cows and the Jersey cows were economically powerful cows. They were often called them business cows and the other ones sort of more ritual cows. And they were saying, to me, and they were actually living this, that, um, you know, it's, you care for these cows immensely, and you love both your jerseys and your Pahari cows, but that jersey cows are killable in a way that Pahari cows were not. So, you know, while they did care for these cows intensely, and while they had this very similar kinds of affective relationships with them, death was seen as part of the natural relationship you know you would that there was care and then there was eventual death that when the cow stopped giving milk she would be sent away and you know when she was sent away she was sent away obviously to a butcher because there are very few people who buy old cows and while the government has been talking a lot about buying dung and trying to make the cow lucrative that actually hasn't happened so really once a cow stops giving milk um it's very hard to care for her, especially if you have multiple other cows. And so I write about how this was a really fraught moment. It wasn't as if people were, you know, just delighted to be sending their cows to their death. It was hard for them, but it was also part of that large rural world where, you know, life and death were part of the same cycle. And I argue that that the fact that Hindu nationalism is invested in this homogenous symbol of the mother cow, right? It's just the mother cow. They don't, uh, they don't necessarily... Um, draw distinctions there, that this actually frustrated the project. And what's interesting, actually, is that um, Hindu nationalists do recognize that there is a difference between different cows, right? And many of them will say things like um, the Jersey cow is a criminal cow or that people who drink the Jersey cow's milk will turn out to be criminals and that the cow is degenerate. Uh, one BJP minister said that um, bulls, um, the Jersey bulls are uh, are like English men in that they have lose morals. Um, so there is that sense of uh, of nativism and a valorization of native breeds, but this has not actually filtered down into the ways in which into the actual mechanics of the cow protection movement, because they're not letting people go if they're carrying Jersey cows, right? You could have a Jersey cow with you if you're a Muslim or a Dalit and still be lynched. And so there's this kind of tension between what they're saying and what they're doing, and um, that doesn't quite allow this project to be successful. And I think that the materiality of these cows has a huge part to play in that. So that's the argument there.
0: So just uh, uh, pushing this conversation a bit further, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was very intrigued by the by the title of this chapter, which is The Cow Herself Has Changed. And, and to a large extent, you've already touched on this, but I was wondering if you could... Sort of further elaborate on on this particular point because it is so central and also really fascinating. Uh, what, what does that mean? How, what uh, uh, how does that capture sort of the major argument that you pursue in this chapter? And again, why is this focus on? shifting materiality of the cow so central to your argument, building on what you've already talked about uh, so far.
1: Yeah, and I can talk a little bit about the broader social ramifications. So the the cow herself has changed, is actually something that um, someone said to me, someone that I know well there. Um, he was um, a Dalit man, and we were just talking about, about cows and milk and the significance of milk in the village. And one of the things he'd said to me was that um, when he was headman, You know, he was often humiliated by upper-castes who denied him milk, and so they would give him black tea, and they wouldn't put milk in it because the idea was that if a Dalit drank that milk, um, the milk would be contaminated, right? And this is the upper-caste reasoning. And this man was telling me about how humiliating it was, but then he said, well, you know... um, but that's changed now to some extent. And I said, you know, what's changing? And he said, well, you know, one of the things is the cow herself has changed and there are all these people who are keeping Jersey cows and they have much more milk than they can keep for household consumption. So they're sending it to dairies and who knows who's drinking that milk when it's sold to dairies. So, you know, what kind of threat are we? And so he said, "Um, those cows don't have the same kind of ritual power. So people don't really... um, don't really have the same kinds of restrictions that they do. So he was thinking about how um, the, the changing of the materiality of the cow had also changed the forms of relatedness that were rooted in bodily exchanges with these cows. And I wanted to take that seriously and think about how it is that um, people's relationships to one another have also changed in this landscape, but also their relationships um, to their cows. Another person told me about how her mother, when she was dying, there's this ritual that people follow called the and she, uh, where you, the idea is that you hold on to the tail of a cow in the dying moments um, so that the cow can take you across the, the river of death that you have to cross once you die before you can go over to the other side. And so Um, this mother refused to die until she could hold the tail of a mountain cow. And her daughter-in-law brought a Jersey cow in. She said, no, I'm not going to die holding onto the tail of this Jersey that's just going to leave me in the middle of the river. So you have to find me a mountain cow. And they did. And so there were all these ways in which people were working through what it meant to live alongside very different kinds of cows. And And I keep wanting to stress that this was not the same thing as a sort of bio-nationalist critique that is emerging through Hindu nationalism, right? That these are inferior cows because they're foreign cows. People rec- and really did love their jerseys and they had deep relationships of um, affective relationships with them. But they recognized also that these were different cows and that recognition was predicated in these everyday exchanges that they had with them as they cared for them and as they milked them and as they labored in one another. And yeah, that's that's where the materiality really comes in.
0: So let's shift to your chapter on uh, monkeys. And here you talk about this phenomenon of the outsider monkeys in Uttarakhand. Uh, Could you tell us uh, what that phenomenon is and uh, uh, how do the commentaries surrounding this phenomenon uh, exceed and resist uh, neat human-animal dichotomies, which again comes back to the larger uh, thread running through this book?
1: Yeah, and this is also in many ways a chapter about materiality, and I think each of those chapters um, focuses on that question of thinking through the the very sort of significant materiality of animals. And here, um, my point of entry into thinking through that broader question came when um, I started doing fieldwork, and people everywhere were talking about how these monkeys would show up in trucks at night, and that villages that had never had monkeys would suddenly be um, surrounded by hundreds of monkeys, and people were arguing that these monkeys had come from Delhi, that they had come from Haldwani, or Nenital, or Almoda, basically that these were city monkeys and they were outsider monkeys, and there was this um, huge fear about what this meant and why it was that these monkeys had been put into that landscape, and people were distinguishing between these monkeys and the their own local monkeys, and arguing that, you know, the the that you could tell that there were very significant differences between them because the outsider monkeys were clearly city monkeys, and they had city mores, they had city morals, and that they behaved very much like Choros uh, from Delhi did. So this was a common refrain, right? That, Delhi, that the people from Delhi are misbehaved, and so are these monkeys from Delhi because they have no concern for um, living in connection with other beings. They would barge into people's houses, steal their food. Um, they bit a lot of people. Very recently, when I was up in the mountains, uh, couple of months ago, um, people were telling me that the monkeys that had been dropped off had actually eaten a dead cow, and this was held up as another instance of their outsiderness. And I argue in the chapter that this uh, notion of the distinct materiality of different kinds of animals and where they come from um, fed into a local politics of belonging. And so the state uh, of Uttarakhand was created in um, 2000. And the idea was, you know, that this would be now a mountain state and it would attend to the distinct needs of mountain people. And there's been a deep sense of um, disappointment with the new state, especially over the last decade, as it becomes clear that, you know, there's um, rapid environmental degradation, unemployment is very, high Um, rates of out migration have continued unabated and out migration was one of also the concerns people were saying that you know the mountains are just getting abandoned and there's everybody's leaving because there's nothing here and so there was this fear about whether people in the mountains would be able to socially and culturally reproduce themselves and so within that larger context of um, desperation there was also over the last few years, an influx of um, people from outside, you know, people who were buying second homes, um, people who were building hotels in the Himalayas. And there was very much this sense that they were buying into this um, enchanted landscape, if you will, that they were, you know, coming to escape the city. And so it really created the conditions in which um, fears about who belonged and who didn't and who would have access to resources and who didn't became very pronounced. And the monkeys fit into that very neatly. So this chapter really examines how um, how the monkeys became both the the mechanism but also the cause for some of this, um, for this kind of politics of belonging based on the sense of victimhood. And I try and explore the ambiguities of that because, you know, on the one hand it is true that, um, that there has been just... Uh, high levels of corruption and not much employment, but then there's also the dangers of a politics of victimhood that is based in a kind of nativist argument. So I try and explore those ambiguities in this chapter and think about how people's relationship with monkeys both feed into that, but also resist it. So I end the chapter by talking about this um, elderly grandfather who I knew quite well, and his field had been ravaged by these dropped-off monkeys. And, you know, they had a massive fruit orchard that just... Went, um, it became completely useless because the monkeys would eat everything the pears, the peaches, what they didn't eat, they would shake to the ground. So the family's fortunes changed very quickly, and um, this old man was particularly enraged by the monkeys and he would spend most of his days outside trying to shoo them off and that didn't really work but uh, one day I observed him feeding one of the monkeys and I was really stunned because it didn't fit with any of what he had said and then he was very defensive and said no look she this monkey is different you know she's different from the pack and they don't like her either and she's abandoned and there was this moment of connection between them and that also reminded me that, you know, even as people are drawing animals into these other kinds of defined politics and these politics of victimhood, there's also the ability to make connections that move beyond that and that uh, that shake up that politics. So, yeah, that's that chapter.
0: Let us now turn to the figure of the wild uh, pig or uh, this category that you employ in this chapter called the other wild. Um, Mm -hmm. I I was wondering if you could explain a bit what this category means and also uh, talk a bit about the kinds of colonial histories and post-colonial appropriations of those histories that the pig is entangled in. And uh, uh, again, uh, how do you employ this category of the other wild in this chapter to complicate conventional logics of rule and domination often taken as a granted when it comes to uh, human, non-human animal encounters.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the story of the pig, because I think the other one makes sense only if you know um, the story that frames that category. So um, again, when I was doing field work in 2010, 2011, there was a, a massive wild boar problem. And that's actually continued into the present. Um, you know, there were lots of wild boar that would dig people's crops up. And it was Here, too, the sense that things had not been that bad in the past, that the population had really exploded. But it was a very different origin story than with the monkeys. And I find that interesting, too, because I think it points to the fact that these are not just conspiracy theories, right, that people aren't using. They're not saying wild boar are getting dropped off. Um, They have different explanations for why um, the density of animals and the nature of people's relationships with them have changed. But the story in the case of the wild boar was that there was um, the Indian Veterinary Research Institute was a colonial institution that had been set up in the region in uh, the late 19th century. And the idea was to do research on animal diseases. And so they kept a number of livestock animals, cows and pigs um, in the early period. And uh, people started telling me about a pig who had run away um, in the 60s or 70s. The timing was somewhat unclear. But um, she just disappeared one day when they had been taken out to graze, and the pig was pregnant. And uh, people argued that you know the the wild boar problem got much worse after this pig made her escape because she had probably given birth to her piglets in the forest, and then the piglets had either mated with more wild boar or had their own babies. And pigs multiply very quickly. This was something people kept emphasizing, and you know it is actually possible to imagine that the the population increased. Rapidly. But the pig was then an interesting figure for people because she called into question this idea that you couldn't shoot wild boar because they came under the Wildlife Act. So many people would say to me, you know, look at this madness that we live in. We have these pigs, basically pigs who've gone wild, but domestic pigs who've gone wild. Who um, are eating our crops and attacking us, and yet we can't do anything to them because the state tells us they're wild animals. So is the state mad or are we mad to live in these conditions? And I argue that the pig represents the possibility of an other wild. And what I mean by that is a, a, a kind of wildness that is not entirely contained by such logics of by such colonial logics of purity, um, and a wildness that is that examines the inability of humans to actually establish control over non-humans. And I'll try and explain that a little. Um, I go through in the chapter uh, some of the colonial conservation laws in the region and try and think through the ways in which wildness was framed um, as this, as or wild animals were framed as these beings who had to be protected from the wild and savage natives, right? So wildness does two kinds of work there. On the one hand, it speaks to the uncontrollable nature of native people there in uh, in those regions, but also uh, becomes this resource that has to be protected at all costs for itself, right? And this is the transition that happens. First, it was really protecting wild animals for colonial officials to shoot. But then in the 1930s, there's also this argument made about conservation for its own sake. And that um, logic of Having to protect wild animals from the savagery of locals is something that actually animates post-colonial conservation policy in India as well, right? There is um, there have been talks about allowing um, people to shoot wild boar because that population is really growing exponentially, but there's it's always pulled back, right? Almost nobody actually gets a license to shoot wild boar, although in theory you could go and apply for a license to shoot. Uh, wild boar that are eating your crops. But no forest official will actually provide that license because there's always an uproar from environmentalists who argue that you know there's that the nation is not invested in protecting its wild heritage. Um, there's also just this fear that, you know, if you give one person a license, they'll shoot 20 pigs and then cause uh, a collapse in populations. So there is very much that, that mistrust of people that uh, lingers from that colonial period into the post-colonial period. And I argue that the pig was an interesting figure because she, um, you know, on the one hand, it allowed people to critique this policy by pointing to the ways in which wildness is actually a shifting historical um, category that is not as pure as the state imagines it to be, right? Because, the you know, the pig is uh, what they call paltu jungli, domestic wild, Um and on the other hand, there was an interesting caste dimension to this as well. And, you know, people would use, especially Dalits would use um, this tenuous wildness of pigs there, right? The idea that they were actually descended from domestic pigs at some point to critique upper castes who would consider pork impure, but would eat the flesh of wild pigs because it was game meat. And so I met a number of Dalits who argued that, you know, this revealed upper caste hypocrisy and that it also... Um, showed up upper caste who were in reality really eating the flesh of a domestic pig, even as they looked down on and oppressed um, Dalits for doing that themselves, especially um, uh, the particular caste called the Balmikis um, in the city areas. And so I get into that a little bit in the book as well and try and think about the ways in which uh, the the story of the pig has this potential both for critiquing projects of colonial domination and caste domination but also because um you could the pig was really a story her story was one of throwing off the shackles of human domination right and people would talk about how animals have a mind of their own. And they talk particularly about how pigs have a desire for wildness always. And this speaks again to broader things we know about um, how easily pigs can become feral, for instance. But people would point to that and uh, argue that the pig story also represented the futility of trying to establish human control over animals. And so I look at those three dimensions that are opened up by the story.
0: So the next uh, chapter revolves around uh, the bear and especially this uh, genre that you talked about uh, uh, called uh, bear talk or uh, ki baat. Uh, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you describe to us what what this uh, entails. And uh, uh, I mean, one of the main arguments that you make in this chapter is that this this genre of of, of bear talk uh, subverts patriarchal norms. It intersects in very interesting ways with female desire and sexuality, and also signals some unexpected. Uh, queer intimacies Uh, so I I was wondering if you could describe uh, the central threads of of, uh, those arguments and perhaps uh, if you might also touch a bit on how this chapter contributes to the broader fields of um, gender sexuality and uh, queer studies
1: yeah so um, the story or the talk, I struggled with what to call them, which is why I always pause. Um, When I started doing field work, a number of women would warn me about being out late in the evenings on my own. And they said, you know, you should watch out because uh, the bear will get you. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant. And finally, I asked one of the women and she said, look, bears do to women what men do to women. And the implication was that bears have sex with women. And then I started hearing more Of this talk, and it was always framed um, as uh, true stories, right? People would say, Oh, this happened to somebody in the next village. She was taken by a bear, and then she uh, was rescued six months later, but she was pregnant and gave birth to these half human, half bear babies. In some versions, um, the woman falls in love with the bear and actually doesn't want to return. And what I found fascinating was um, that these were stories that were uh, that I could trace in a multiplicity of other contexts. So I found stories like this in um, medieval German texts. There were similar stories in uh, in uh, Native American lore and in Native American history, and there were also similar stories in um, in medieval English texts as well, so it was clear that this was a sort of. I was trying to think through what this talk did, um, and why not only why um, these women were talk were uh, were using these tellings, and I argue that they that these tellings actually transgressed dominant gender roles and ideologies that treat women's sexuality as a problem. Um, you know, even if that transgression is only momentary but i was also interested in how these stories call the boundary between human and animal into question because these are stories about bestiality and they raise really compelling questions not just about women's lives and desires but also about interspecies relationships why bears you know how do bears come to be related to women as husbands and as lovers and what uh, allows for this kind of queer bound, boundary crossing and what does that do to this kinship between humans and animals so I go through these um, stories, and one of the things that I discuss in the chapter that I still struggle with is um, how these stories relate to violence against women. You know, when I first heard the story, the I, I treated it as a story of sexual assault in some sense, but uh, all the women I talked to were very clear that this was not rape, and they knew what rape meant as a category. And they said, no, you know, yes, the bear abducts the woman, but there is a certain and yes, um, the bear is this kind of violent lover, right? You know, the people would share very um, explicit details of what happened between the bears and these women. In one telling, the bear licks the soles of a woman's feet to the point where she can't, where she's unable to walk because his tongue is so rough, um, and so on. So there were, there were really sort of detailed stories, but everyone I talked to insisted that this was not um, sexual assault, but that it was actually... Um, more sort of um, sweet and sour kind of relationship and this is the language that people use you know that this is it's a little bit like married life where you always have these um, difficulties with your husbands and I I found that uh, that question of violence really hard to work through and that's something that takes up a portion of this chapter how do we make sense of um, the violence that it cuts through all these relationships whether between um, men and women um, or between humans and between humans and bears um, so that's one part of the chapter and then the other part of this is to think through how um, these tellings actually foreground the sexuality of women and celebrate it and, um, and push against norms that treat women's desire as a problem right? and I, to do that I actually explore the context in which these stories were told um, in one case a woman Um, shamed her husband who was she told me that you know and a few other women that her husband was tired and he didn't want to have sex and so she started shaming him by talking about how bears are um, more sexually active and I found that really fascinating because it wasn't what I expected but I found that the stories actually were able to do that work of um, of normalizing women's desire and actually shaming um, their shaming for the desire that they expressed
0: Now, you end uh, the book uh, with a very powerful meditation on the interaction of love, violence, and uh, death. Uh, Could you tell us the gist of what you argue there?
1: Yeah, um, so so much of the book deals with um, questions of uh, violence, right? Whether it's between humans, between humans and non-humans. And I wanted to try and think through the ways in which... um, that violence intersects with what people call love, and what do we make of that relationship? Because on the one hand, you know, a number of women that I was talk, uh, talking to would argue that the violence against animals, whether you know sacrificial goats or whether go, uh, cows who were sent to butchers, was um, remedied in some sense by the fact that they loved these animals and that they'd had this relationship of love with them. But on the other hand, you also have Hindu nationalists who are claiming to be motivated by love for the cow when they are committing these acts of costly violence against humans who are seen as a threat to the cow, primarily Dalits and Muslims in India. Um, and so I wanted to try and think through what that meant. I mean, do you just write love off as a political category as or as an experiential category? Or are there ways to um, to try and work through these different kinds of relationships and distinguish between them? And to some extent, this meditation is inspired by broader inquiries into uh, the nature of love and what love does in the world. And, you know, there are theorists like Elizabeth Pavinelli who point to the fact that um, love as a sort of liberal category is often used to fetishize the individual and dislocate the individual from broader social contexts. So, you know, the idea that love can overcome racism, for instance, that in, that human love can um, can exfoliate the social skin. And become this individualized thing. Um, Lauren Berland writes about this a little bit as well. And I was interested in thinking through that question ethnographically and to say what, you know, can we what do we do with love? And one of the things I argue is that all love is decidedly uninnocent, right? And this is something that Donna Haraway has been talking about recently. What do we do with uninnocent forms of connection? But for me, um, you know, the love that these women I were talking to. I was talking to uh, claimed, and the love that um, some of the Gaurakshaksi's cow protectionists claimed were both forms of affective attachment that ultimately privileged their own subjectivity over that of the other. Um, Right? And love was always kind of bound up with interest, with self interest. You know, I love my cow as long as she gives me milk, um, and so on. But, and it was also bound up with injustice. But there were, to my mind, critical differences between those two kinds of love. And one of the things I argue is that the the love and the care that women claim to feel was really born in this particular kind of rural political economy in which women are almost entirely responsible for that tedious and arduous labor of caring for animals. And this is something I talked about earlier. And that gendered um, patriarchal labor is really critical in creating the terrain on which Mm -hmm these affective relationships can emerge, right? And that we really have to think hard about what that labor does. And I argue that that labor for these women actually does some work to undo the self, right? There are these moments of grief, there are moments of self-questioning, there are moments of shame, of self-shame that these women were experiencing. And that allowed them, even if momentarily, even if in small ways, to question themselves. And it it interrupted... sort of selfish self-interest, right, that people argue is at the heart of love. Um, But on the other hand, if you know, talking to a number of Gaurakshaks, their love was very pure, right, their love had no room for questioning and they argued all the time that our love is really pure and that's why we're willing to do whatever it takes to protect the cow. And I argue that their love is actually much more transcendental in nature, right? And it evokes the um, the idea of the cow is this kind of broad gendered symbol and it doesn't actually take into account the everydayness of these relationships. And so what I'm arguing ultimately is that um, love is a really troublesome category, but it does invite in some cases the possibility of self-questioning and how we might be differently in relation to others and so to me the argument is really how do we think through these categories ethnographically and how do we think through their political context and the context in which they're deployed um, to be able to make sense of them
0: so as we're coming to the end of our time uh, Radhika could you share a bit uh, about what's the next project that you're thinking to do
1: Sure. So um, the next project takes up some of these questions. I'm interested in understanding how non-humans are being mobilized as political actors in democratic politics. And I can give you a couple of examples of the kinds of questions I'm thinking about. One note, of course, is um, cow protection and the cow and how the cow is being uh, mobilized as a political actor at the same time that um, humans are being disenfranchised within these democratic spaces. And I'm thinking particularly of, you know, again, uh, Muslims within the Hindu nation, but also Dalits, um, and how those two processes go hand in hand. And one of the things I want to do is try and uh, push against the idea that to imagine animals as political actors is always and already a progressive move. And I want to think through what it makes possible. Yes, this kind of questioning of human... um, sovereignty and of human exceptionalism, but also to think through how those categories of what it means to be human, what it means to be animal, are really fragile and predicated on particular understandings of race and difference. And so that's um, one kind of example. Um, Another example is that the the high court in Uttarakhand, the same state that I work in, recently announced that the animal kingdom would have um, the same rights as living people. And I'm interested in what that move does. How do you How do you conceptualize that legally? How do you conceptualize that politically? Um, And what's at stake, really, in these moments of inclusion and exclusion? And what role do non-humans play in shaping the nature of this politics? Again, a concern that comes in from this earlier work into this work. So that's um, the new project.
0: Animal intimacies, interspecies relatedness in India's Central Himalayas by Radhika Govind Rajan published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018 uh, thank you so much radhika for this wonderful book uh, that is sure to spark uh, many conversations in multiple fields and thank you for your time and for this uh, eloquent uh, engagement uh, with this book thank you so much
1: thank you so much for the invitation this has been a real pleasure to do thank you
0: so this was my conversation with professor radhika Goman rajan on the new books network about her wonderful new book, Animal Intimacies. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and will continue listening to your favorite podcast, The New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to The New Books Network.